Hi guys, and welcome to episode 71 of the Optical View podcast. Today I'm extremely excited to have on Ross Milet. Ross is a pro boxer. He is a former national team member for Wacko Kickboxing. He has traveled around the world. He is a lifelong martial artist. He also has his own podcast, The Face Behind the Name, which is a wonderful podcast. I am an avid listener. Highly, highly recommend that. This is part one of two-part series with Ross Milet. Hope you guys enjoy. It only gets better the more you listen. I'll see you guys in the next one. I want to give a huge shout-out to my sponsor, the one and only known across Canada and across Ontario, Tim Hortons. Always fresh. Always Tim Hortons. Hang on, guys. Before you enjoy this episode with Ross Milet, big announcement here. Second award show going down September 30th. Location in Bowmanville. Same place as the last time. 182 Wellington Street, Bowmanville, Ontario, Canada. September 30th, Saturday. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Optical View Podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest I have on Ross Milet. How's it going, Ross? It's going well. Thank you for having me, brother. I'm excited to hear your story and, and talk a little bit about not only your background, but also the podcast that you have going on. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces right now. I'm wearing many hats, so it's uh, it can either be the long version or the short version, and that depends on how hard you want to dig into it. <laughs> Well, I'll let, I'll let you choose that because I got all the time in the world for you. Before we jump into jump into this story and who you are, I have a couple quick rapid-fire questions for you. Sure. Favorite genre of music? Metal. Your favorite thing about yourself? Mm, sense of humor. What do you think is the best gift that you've ever received? Mm, that's a good question. Probably just the ability to learn under incredible coaches. So just experience like um, like the gift of, of education from phenomenal coaches. Nice, nice. I'm going to flip that around now. What do you think is the best gift that you've ever given? Uh, that's good. I don't know. I'm not really a materialistic guy. I mean, I like nice things, but, um, you know, just uh, loyalty and love probably to my uh, to my closest people, you know. Beautiful. Do you have a favorite quote? If you do, what is it? Mm, favorite quote? Uh, it stuck with me from a long, long time ago. Uh, was uh, Lana Taylor once said, a gentleman is just a patient wolf. And it's mm -hmm. sort of a metaphor for, you know, when, uh, I mean, you should always be a gentleman, obviously, but the, uh, the true nature of a gentleman is just being able to be patient and watch the bullshit go by and, and do, your, uh, do your thing very quietly, you know? Mm, mm. if a movie ever gets made about you who would you want to play you in the movie oh, i don't know everybody's way too tall to play me in the movie to be honest with you um that's a good question i would have no idea i feel you man i'm not that tall either so <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite tattoo either on yourself or on somebody else and what's the meaning slash significance behind it I got a couple. I mean, uh, I love all my work, uh, but I think uh, I got a teacup on my arm. That was uh, for my wife. I Her nickname's Teacup. Um, and then on the other arm, on the opposing side, I have so, a little something from my mom. So probably those two are the most meaningful um, and probably my favorite, too. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm going to move into fill in the blank now. Okay, you can take this any way you want it. The first one I got for you is if I didn't have boxing, I wouldn't have blank. Uh, probably a life. <laughs> okay. Okay. When I wake up in the morning, I think of blank. Mm, all the shit that I have to do today. <laughs> for sure. 
And now we're moving on to the this or that segment. This is the last thing we do before we jump into the juicy stuff. Cool. Audiobook or podcast? Podcast, for sure. Hot or cold weather? Hot, definitely. I'm right with you, man. (laughs) Too small for the cold stuff. Cats or dogs? Dogs, a thousand percent, every time. Coffee or tea? Coffee, every time. (laughs) <laughs> morning or night person uh night for sure night all right tacos or burgers tacos for sure pancakes or waffles pancakes okay okay soup or salad uh salad probably introverted or extroverted Introverted. Apple or Android? Oh, Apple for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and my last one, my favorite one, pizza or pasta? Pizza for sure, every time. Everybody, everybody goes with pizza, man. I've only had a few, a uh, few guests that go with pasta. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I've never been. Uh, even in, like fighting overseas when we were going, and I had a couple fights in Italy, and it was like, I don't know, it just. I would always gravitate more towards the pizza or anything other than the pasta. It's just too heavy for me. Mm, I feel that. Well, let's get into it, Ross. Who are you? What do you do? And you can take that any way or as long as you want. Uh, I'm Ross Milet. Um, I wear many hats. Uh, most known for being a professional boxer. I have the Canadian bantamweight title right now. And uh, we're looking at moving the ladder, moving up the ladder rather quickly this year. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I wear many hats, so I have, you know, a, a collective that I'm working on and a brand and a podcast and I'm a rep. So I rep a couple of different companies as well. And, uh, so I'm basically flying all over the place at all times. And it sounds like a, a fun life. You have a busy life you have now. Take me, take me back to a much younger loss. How did you first get into boxing? Uh, that story is interesting because I started martial arts um, at the core, um, and it basically came from there. So at the age of four, I was doing Japanese jujitsu, but the instructor at the time was the um, one of the North American champions that was under my coach um, or who became my coach, and um, he always taught it in the curriculum. So he would teach it and he noticed I was good. So I started doing like the light contact kickboxing when I was seven um, and started competing in that. And then uh, from there, moved into the ring sport. Excuse me. And so I was fighting in a ring. Obviously, that was more at the age of 11 or 12, um, fought right up until then in in kickboxing. And then at 12, I I decided this is what I want to do. I, you know, I dabbled in other sports or I dabbled in soccer. Um, hockey was never a thing in my family. Um, and then, um, when I decided to actually do it for real, cause I mean the light contact, um, it's primarily a European sport, um, for those martial artists that know, um, I didn't do ever do point fighting. It was always like, um, like glory rules or, um, they call it full contact. So all the kicks were above the waist, but it was like regular boxing with, with kicks above the waist. Um, and then I moved into low kick and, and glory style rules. Um, so basically from the age of nine until 25, I was competing as an amateur um, in kickboxing and later boxing. So I, I started boxing when I was 13 or 14. Um, and I never really took it serious because I took it as a, as a medium to keep me busy Um because I loved kickboxing at the time and kickboxing, um, allowed me to travel the world. Um, I fought in, on almost every continent. Um, I believe it was close to plus countries, um, was on the national team for years. Um, North American champion, intercontinental champion. And so I was boxing and kickboxing at the same time. And then, um, you know, at, at that point, you start getting a little older and you want to turn professional. But unfortunately, um, professional kickboxing in Ontario and in Canada really is not a thing. Um, so I would have had to move to Europe. Um, 
and that really wasn't the uh, the ideal scenario. So um, we decided to look to boxing, and so I, I competed a couple more years as an amateur in boxing, um, won provincials, won the Canadian Golden Gloves, went to nationals, competed there, um, and then turned professional. And uh, so that was kind of the Coles Notes path of of that, and I had a couple of professional kickboxing fights as well. Um, as I was transitioning into the pros into boxing as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the Coles notes version. Hmm. That's, that's interesting how you first started off with a different martial art. That seems to be the case with a lot of people who end up with, you know, the profession of whatever that fighting would be martial art, fighting martial art would be. Yeah. Do you, do you think that your kickboxing experience, um, benefited you rather than just straight boxing experience? Um, so I'm, I'm always a big advocate of, of amateur pedigree in anything, whether it's, um, when I'm talking to an MMA athlete, um, an amateur athlete that's coming through the ranks or a professional, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the sport is. I mean, ideally you would want to be an amateur in the sport that, um, you're going to turn professional in. Um, and that's why I was doing both at the same time. Now, you know, 125 amateur kickboxing fights, about 70 amateur boxing fights, um, you know, fight at that point, fighting is fighting. And so you get to see it all. So, I mean, I fought, I fought in, you know, tournaments where you had five, six fights. So you're, you know, you're making weight every day. Um, you know, I've fought with pneumonia before I fought very sick. Otherwise, um, I fought at altitude in South Africa. I fought, um, you know, in blistering heat in Brazil when we actually fought outside in the summertime, which is a interesting story. And so we, uh, yeah, it, it's just that, that experience alone, I think is what really, um, as a professional kind of, um, makes you a little bit more thick skinned and understanding that like, you know, shit's not always going to go your way. And you have to be able to like really prioritize what's important, excuse me, and also prioritize, um, you know, is this going to affect me? So with having so many fights, I mean, you mentioned almost over 200 amateur fights there. Were you ever worried about some of the brain damage that could occur as a kid, as a younger athlete? You know, at, at that age for us, it was... Uh... I mean, concussion protocol was never really a thing until later on in my career. Um, and that's when, you know, the, the NFL lawsuits were coming out. And of course, I mean, yeah, you get, you know, you get buzzed or you get dinged and it, and it sucks, but I've always been really lucky that I came from good schooling and, you know, had good defense and could always move my head very well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've been clipped as an amateur and I've been clipped as a professional. So, I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's something that no one can run from, but, I. To be honest with you, I love fighting, you know, and I love everything about it. I love the training camp. I love the the moments before walking to a ring. I love, you know, obviously the fight itself. And I love afterwards seeing all the people there, regardless of the result. So for me, it was always kind of um, a risk to reward factor. And luckily I have cells and I do um, lots of work educating myself on things like neuroplasticity and the way to repair the brain and supplements to take, um, so that, you know, the, the damage is minimal. When you talk about training camps as an amateur here, I mean, having so many fights under your belt, what was the training camp training camps, I guess, like for those fights? Was it no camp and just kind of going off of what you did in the gym? Or did you have a, a tried and true method each time you had a, a fight or a tournament coming up? Yeah, I mean, there. Uh, yeah, okay. So first of all, the, um, the thing is, is when I was a kid, there was, uh, you know, in light contact tournaments, you could have up to 10 fights in a tournament, right? In, in ring sport, you would have, you know, maximum probably six. Um, and so it's actually quite easy to get to a hundred when you think about if you have 10 to 15 fights a year across 10 years, you know, you're at your 150. Right. And that's kind of when, when I was really, when I was younger, especially between the ages of 17, probably 16 and 21, like I was fighting all the time. There was, there was fight trips that we would go on where we would fight in a tournament in Florida. 
and then drive back and then hit another tournament the following weekend on the same trip. Um, and you know, it was like, whatever, six fights in, in Florida, you'd come back and then there'd be, you know, one or two fights elsewhere and then we'd come home. So, I mean, it, it was never, uh, it, it was, it wasn't hard in kickboxing in the States to find fights ever. Um, and then you go overseas and, and you go to a world championships and you know, your pool's 36, right? So, I mean, you have four or five fights there. So yeah, to answer your question for the training camp, we were just always training different styles, all that stuff. So let's let's move on to the boxing here, right? Now, it's interesting you said you have so many uh, amateur fights. Did you fight outside of Ontario and outside of the country primarily? In boxing or in kickboxing? In boxing. So in boxing, it was uh, between primarily Ontario, Quebec. Um, there was a couple in the States, but it was mainly Ontario and Quebec. Because mm. I, I tried to look you up, and, and there was only, I think, seven box rec um so those are those are all national level um like the amateur experience is all that sorry national level when it goes on box rec but things like the brampton cup wouldn't be on there um i don't believe golden gloves was on there because it was the first year that it was out in cornwall um so yeah it's it's that was all national level so a lot of those were at nationals or provincial and when did you know it was time or maybe your coach knew or somebody in your space know it was time to turn pro? Uh, I mean, to be totally honest with you, I think I waited a little bit too long, you know, and I think that was um, maybe a safety net from, from my old coach or, um, you know, I'm not too sure, but I think it was a, it was a good and a bad. So I think that, um, I think that the timing if I went earlier, I would have obviously had more experience in terms of the pros. Um, but I think the maturity level in those last two years that I probably would have turned pro, because I probably would have turned pro two years earlier. Um, but I look at the last two years of experience right before, and it was it was leaps and bounds of experience in terms of like fight maturity than it was um, a detriment. So I think that it was actually the ideal time. Um, and then basically, I just said it. You know, and I was like, I think we need to turn pro because at this point, you know, I it was uh, two years before COVID, so it's about now. And you know, I wasn't getting any any younger, so I think at you know twenty eight, twenty seven, you can't uh, you either do it or you don't. You know, and I'm sort of uh, I've always been the guy that I was you know about it. I never really liked to talk about it. It was just something that I always I always wanted. And, uh, yeah, so I made the call and then my coach at the time was, uh, in contact with Lee, who's my promoter now. And, uh, yeah, so it, it all, it all kind of worked out and the pro debut was kind of a test between, um, myself and someone actually I fought in the amateurs often. Um, and, uh, it was kind of a test and I, I beat him and it was, uh, you know, the rest is history in terms of cracking into the pros. What do you think the biggest difference was in terms of the amateur fight that you had or amateur fights that you had with that gentleman that you had in your pro debut versus the, the now pro debut? Oh, there's so many different things. Um, you know, fight style completely is completely different. I mean, when I switched uh, camps, um, you know, I'm, I'm settling down on my punches more. I'm taking my time a lot more. You have to remember with three rounds when you're an amateur, you got to get as much shit done as you can. Whereas when, when your fights start going six, eight, 10, 12 rounds, you have time, you know, you have time to plant traps and you don't need to feel the anxiety of like, Oh, am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? You know what I mean? And it's, it's about, it's a, it's just a completely different way of looking at, it's almost a different sport. You know what I mean? And it's a, it's a completely different, um, way of 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 fighting and and setting things up because there's no rush you know obviously if if you're losing in a fight and you only have four rounds to go and it's a 12 round fight or whatever yeah you got to put your foot on the gas and try to make something happen but in terms of like generally speaking you have a, a longer timeline so it's more of a marathon than a sprint did you think that you had more of a of a quote-unquote pro style while you're an amateur uh that's a good question i don't i don't I think yes and no. I mean, I think there was things that I would do that were, um, I guess, quote unquote, pro style, like the way that I moved. Um, but I mean, I just, 
did what I had to do to win. You know what I mean? So I think that a lot of guys as an amateur will say, oh, I'm not good at this or three rounds because I have more of a pro style. And yeah, maybe they're right. But I think that like as a high level amateur, you should be able to adapt and do whatever it takes. And, th and that I think is what um, going back to the pedigree conversation we were, we were talking about is that like you as an amateur, those fundamentals come out where, you know, one day you're fighting a guy that's a power puncher. So you got to box him. The other day you're fighting a boxer, so you gotta you gotta figure out how to pin him down and hit him and score. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's I think it's a completely different um, way of looking at the sport. And now, what would you consider your style today to be? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, the 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 honest answer is whatever it needs to be to to make it happen. I don't think that. Um, there's, I don't, I don't think it would be fair to consider me, um, any of the traditional like boxer puncher or, or boxer or any of that stuff, because I'm not like, I try to, I try to hybrid and, and move between certain things. And now with, um, my new team at hard knocks and, and, you know, coach Billy leading that forefront, it's, um, it's one of those things where, you know, I do what he, what the style that he wants me to do. And so a lot of that comes from guys like Johnny Tapia, you know, Johnny Tapia, if you were to look at him, I mean, he could do it all. He could move, he could pump, throw volume, um, he could counter punch. So it, it's kind of like this old school style of being a hybrid. Whereas when you look at a lot of the guys that are, are, are newer, um, and and Devin Haney's a, a perfect example, and I, I mean, incredible athlete, phenomenal boxer, but you could see him get uncomfortable when the the um, the narrative it, there's a little bit of a shift, and he's his pace is rushed, or he's uncomfortable, like when he fought Lomachenko. Lomachenko was on him like a dirty shirt, but changing angles, volume punching. It wasn't the hardest punching in the world, but he was volume punching, and you can just see him get uncomfortable because he wasn't able to go to the metronome that he's normally accustomed to. And so I think that if you were to pin yourself down and, and, uh, and give yourself a style, I don't necessarily think that you're doing a service to yourself unless you're a guy like Shakur Stevenson, who is the best, you know, at what. So it's, it's one of those things. So for me, I don't, I just try to be a hybrid and I try to be the best version of whatever I'm doing, you know? Mm, yes. Well, let's go back a little bit here to your, your pro career here. So you're moving along and you're getting some wins. And then you, you run into, I guess, what would be considered a, a load bump, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And and you take this loss to, I think the gentleman's name is P.G. Tondu. Tondu, yep. right? Yep. Walk me through how that fight went and how you thought it was going to go. Um, well, I mean, it, it's funny because there's so many things that happen after a fight because you look at um, the performance and up until the loss, like up until the, the moment that I lost um, it was going perfectly, but we all looked at the tape and said, you know what? You got reckless because the way that it happened was, and this is going back to what we were, you know, as a professional, you can take your time. So I clipped him with, I don't remember, a left-hand or, or a right-hand, and he, he wobbled. And so I jumped on him, and it was only the first round. And uh, instead of being smart and methodical and tracking him and, and like, keep breaking him down, I basically um, got a little bit dumb and bloodthirsty and was going and, and hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. And the referee went to go between us, or so I thought. And so I stopped punching and looked over at the ref and then I got hit. And so I thought I got up in time and shook off the cobwebs, but the referee didn't agree. Um, that's fine. I mean, he's doing his job. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there to fight. And so it was interesting because after the fact, I, you know, the one thing that I love about my promoter is he's brutally honest with all of his fighters. And he said, you know what, you got reckless. And I totally agree. And I think that, um, it would be dishonest to say otherwise, you know? And I think that um, I was super excited at the time because I was like, oh, this is going to be a perfect stoppage. First round, 
you know, moving forward, it'll catapult my career. Um, and, you know, you get a little bit bloodthirsty and me being um, a speed guy and, and a guy that loves to punch in volume, I uh, just did, I went too much, too crazy. And so um, looking at that, it was just, yeah, a simple mistake, but it cost me. So looking back at it, you know, it was funny. There was a whole series of events that happened after that. And, um, you know, one of them, and, and I've talked about this on my podcast before, was uh, my best friend got admitted to um, the Peter Monk on uh, up at college in the hospital there because um, he needed a, a heart transplant. And he comes to my fights notoriously. And so um, it was really interesting because then COVID happened, right? And uh, no one was able to uh, um, to visit. So I was actually sneaking into the hospital. So I, I developed a relationship with the girl at the front. Um, she was really sweet. Um, she let me go in and visit. And we would watch fights every weekend. And uh, that was kind of our time. But the other thing that was really interesting about that time was is that we really got to talk about the loss. We got to talk about – because I was devastated, obviously. I mean, losing – in that fashion is never, never good. But it, 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 he was really interesting about it because he was like, you know, who are you without fighting? And we really stripped the layers back and talked about, you know, who I am. Why does the loss bother you? What is this? What is that? And so, you know, it, at, at the end of the day, if you can't look at it at for exactly what it is at face value, then you will never recover from it. And I see it time and time again, where guys, you know, they lose in, in great fashion or horrible fashion or whatever. And they just can't, it's always excuses. It's always because of something else. And you know what? I made the mistake. And um, after that, um, he uh, he had his heart transplant. Unfortunately, he didn't make it through. Um, and he passed away in November of the following year. COVID was just finishing. So I fought in December in the rematch and uh, and won every second of every round. But it was because I was able to come to terms with that. And I think that it was a, a real um, maturing experience because I was able to look at it and say, you know what, um, this doesn't, one, define a career, but two, um, you know, after the, re like after the rematch, it was almost like, oh, this is what should have happened the first time. So I'm not really that excited. Um, uh, one of those experiences in life that I was able to look at, and even though he had passed away, right, like literally within two weeks of that, um, the rematch, it I knew the reasons why I had to do it and why, uh, how he would want me to do it and how he expected me to do it. So for me, it was, it was a really nice way of coming to terms with, you know, how I was able to um, understand what happened, knowing that it's my fault. I mean, we all make mistakes and that's fine. And, and, you know, critics will say, oh yeah, well, so-and-so doesn't and good for them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid to be myself and I'm not afraid that that happens. And I think a lot of people look at that and it's interesting because if you ever talk about someone's losses, whether it's as an amateur or a pro, they always get like a little bit, um, like not anxious, but they get a little bit different. You know what I mean? And it's not, it's almost like they don't want to talk about it or they want to ignore it. And you know what? Losing, unfortunately for everyone except for that 0.01%. Um, but, you know, I, I think people remember the resilience of athletes far more than they remember a loss. And I think that if you can show people that the resilience that you have inside is far greater than any loss that you'll receive then nobody's going to remember it anyway yeah i mean i think you're exactly correct um first off thanks for sharing the story and and my condolences to you know for your best friend there what immediately um crossed my mind on that was do you think there was i mean do you believe in fate or anything like that was that something that was that that if that loss was to happen at a different time, you wouldn't have reacted the same way. Uh, I think it, yeah. Like uh, I do think that it was the perfect storm of um, how it happened when, because Tosh was in the hospital and stuff like that. But I, you know, there's so many ways to look at it and, and I don't try really that hard to, to look for signs or any of that stuff. I'm a very, um, I don't want to say simple because it's not simple, but you know, like it, it's just the way I look at it is it, I, um, I 
I appreciate it a lot that it um, it happened when it did, and and got to spend time with you know my wife and and Tosh and and his girlfriend, and you know like we basically just hung out, and it it was nice because for me it was like I just got to be a, a normal human for a bit because COVID basically happened, and and so um, I was still training every day and and doing my thing, but it was uh, yeah I mean. Did it happen? Did it happen at the right time? Absolutely. Um, was it fate? That's not. I'm not smart enough to answer that one, man. <laughs> well, you mentioned something about the identity. I want to bring up in a little bit. Um, sure. But before we get to that, I'm curious. I mean, how did this rematch come about? Was there a rematch clause? And then, if I'm correct, I think that was also for the for the vacant bantamweight title too. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think my thing was is immediately after the fight, I looked at him and I said, "I'll see you again soon." And um, so when COVID opened up, we had no options other than to fight other Canadians. And I mean, the one thing about PG is he'll fight anybody. And uh, he's uh, as an amateur, he was a standout. He went to the Pan Am Games. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, he's a real deal. I, I mean, he's a and what I love about him as well is he's a very respectful um honorable person and so he just took it with no questions asked you know and I, I think i think the other the flip side of the same coin though is is that if he felt that he did that in the first one he probably felt he could do it in the second one mm. so and that that was for the title there yep yeah yeah how, how did that come about i mean why wasn't the title on on the line in the first one versus the second one was that the promoter is that the manager what does that... i'm not i'm not too sure like lee um just made it happen and so maybe it was supposed to be for the first one but it never got worked out or whatever but it just it just happened so i mean the other thing too is is that um one of the things that i'm i've done um i've i've managed to do very well is is that you know i just let let people do or or um i don't want to say do their job because that sounds a little bit ugly but they do their uh you know i let them handle their business and so when lee did that it was i was extremely thankful and said yeah i, was, I mean that's amazing but um by no means did i ask for it um the only thing that was important to me was the uh the rematch and now, right before we get to the identity question here, but now looking at your record, right? I mean, especially in, in men's pro boxing, there's almost a stigma around having a loss on your record, right? So at the time, you know, you now just won the rematch, but that loss is still with you. How are you able to look at the traje trajectory of your career with that loss? Um, you know, it's funny because I look at... Um... I look at each fight as an individual piece, right? And so whether it's a shitty performance or a loss or a win, I mean, you're only really as good as your last fight. And so my objective still to this day is every fight just become like, I want people to like, so here's an example. The, my last fight that I just had two weeks ago, um, I made... I made a statement um, with the stoppage and with who it was, but also um, every person that was there were like, wow, we knew you were good, but we did not know you were that good. Um, and to me, that's far greater than any other compliment. You know what I mean? Like that is, can change people's minds or change their vision of who I am by a result or a performance. Um, there's no, I don't need to look back, you know, because I'm not that guy anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not the Ross Milet of two years ago. I'm not the Ross Milet of two fights ago. You know, I'm, I'm, my last performance was, was great. And my next one will be even better, you know? And I think that that's, uh, that's something that, again, a lot of fighters, um, or a lot of people, I think they live in the glory days, you know, and they, they, they aren't willing. And, you know, they say when you win a world title, um, you level up, but keeping the world title is the hardest thing. And it's because, you know, you, you think that you are the top dog. So what are you going to learn? You know, and you have to stay humble enough to, to keep your coaches and you have to have coaches around you that are going to keep you accountable. Like if I want a world title, I would never want to change my coaching staff because I know that with coach Billy, he will say, get your head out of the fucking clouds and get to work because he knows what it's like to be at the top. And it's way worse. You know, winning a world title is hard. Keeping a world title is very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, for me, it's 
I don't need to look back at it. And yeah, there's a one there, but I mean, fuck, like if, if I'm going to be, be defined by one loss, I don't think the, the person that's criticizing that really means anything to me anyways, because they're looking back two years, three years, you know? And, and when you look at fighters playing head games, Oh, you lost to so-and-so or you did this. Like if, if I wasn't, at terms with it maybe that would bother me but like yeah i lost and then i did it again and then swept them so it's like what do you want me to say it it, it happens you know and, and does it suck for sure but like there's nothing i can do or say or nothing they can do or say that's going to make that change so either you move on or you let it destroy you let's talk a little bit about identity here i mean you touched you touched a little bit on it i mean obviously with so many fights under your belt you consider yourself a fighter when the time comes to retire how do you think you're going to be able to move on with your life as not now being a fighter um it's funny we i, I talk about this often actually we uh um and and my wife uh at times is terrified because she's like you know you're going to need something that's going to replace whether it's the adrenaline rush or the uh the ring feeling that you get or whatever but you know for me it's just when i'm done it's because um you know i i take a really bad loss or you know things just aren't going right or whatever and and you know if if when i walk away from the sport it's um it'll never be too early you know but it'll also never be too late so i think i've done everything in my life currently to make sure that my performances are good you know what i mean and so i don't have any excuses and you know i know a lot of people that um you know when they retire or um they're going through their careers now and they you know i look at them and i'm like man when they retire they're gonna wish they didn't party or they, they're gonna wish you know they kept their weight down or they're gonna wish that they did x y and z and that's fine but you know i mean i don't drink i don't do drugs I live a really clean life. You know, I don't go out and party. Um, I try to be a person of the community. You know, I, I really want to make sure that all of my people um, are successful and, and, you know, support people within my community in Toronto and um, really grow with everyone. And, you know, I think that for me is what's going to allow me to step away whenever that may be, whether it's in, you know, two years, five years, because, there's so many people that I've developed relationships with because of fighting. Um, and I've done everything in my capacity to make sure that, um, you know, my training camps go well, you know, and training camps are expensive because of that, you know, making sure I go to bed at the right time, making sure I'm waking up at the right time, training at the right time. You know, I never miss a day. And, and so I can't, the one thing I cannot do regardless of all of these things, is look back at my career and say, you know, I wish I did this, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I could say, I wish I was better. That's different, but, um, that's, that's a different conversation. But I, uh, in terms of like letting go, um, whenever that is, I, I think it, I don't think it'll be easy, but I think it will be, um, uh, I think it'll be, I'll be able to break away from it without wanting that one last touch. You know what I mean? And you see a lot of guys that, um, more fight it's like man you're too old you or you need the money um and it's one of those things and that's when it gets scary you know and i also have really good people around me that will be brutally honest with me and say you know what you're done so until that happens or until you know i get to exactly where i want to go then i'm i'm committed do you think when that time does come and you know, as you're speaking, it sounds like it's it's plenty of years away. When that time does come, are you going to stop cold turkey and that's it? No more um, going inside that training room? Or are you still gonna still gonna be in there hitting pads and helping the younger generation, being a coach, being a role model to some of these younger guys coming up? Um, I, like I think in terms of training, I'll I'll always train, and I think it's um, you know, my perspective on fighting is is once you turn into being a professional, like it's almost a, a job to pass your knowledge on, you know, and a, a, not a job, a, a responsibility, you know, and I, I think that, um, you know, information for the next generation is always, is always, um, you know, you're always thanked for it. But I think that, um, you know, I, I always look at it 
as if I have a student that supersedes what I've done, um, I've done my job, you know, and, and, you know, the, I think the, uh, the narrative of, you know, nobody will be as good as me is, is a failure because if you can't make somebody better than you were, then, then you failed that person, you know? And I think for me, I love teaching. Um, I've always loved teaching, whether it's recreational or at the, at the pro level, it doesn't matter. Um, but I think that for me, like, um, I would have failed myself and also failed my teachers, you know, because I think that the knowledge that they pass on to me, um, throughout the years should be retaught, you know, and maybe there's a different flair to it, maybe, um, of my style, but that's fine. I mean, you know, information is information. Do you go to a fight with the mentality of if you lose a fight, you are letting down your coaches or on the other side, if you win the fight, you were winning one for the community. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I'm much simpler than that. Um, I heard a great quote actually. Um, and it's funny that it was from him because I, I've actually fought when, when he was fighting in Brazil with us there. Um, Alex Pereira, um, the guy that knocked out Israel Adesanya and then just lost to him. Um, said it, I think he actually put it best. Um, he said that in the first fight when he fought Izzy, he said, the difference between me and Israel is I fight to win, Israel fights not to lose. And so that that's a very powerful statement because fighting not to lose is very different than fighting to win. It's a completely different statement. And so the way that I look at that is when you fight to win, you're fighting for everything that you have. If you fight not to lose, you're fighting afraid to lose it. And so, you know, I, I will always go out on my shield and I will always do my thing. And, and I don't think about letting people down and I don't think about uh, lifting people up in that circumstance. I just say, you know what, I'm really privileged to be here and to have these people around me. And, and you know, what, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do my best and, and I know what my best looks like and they all know what my best looks like. So if I can just perform at that capacity, then, then I've done my job. How much of fighting do you think is, is mental? Um, it's funny because, I, you know, I, I went through a bit with my last trainer. I went through a big, like, um, he's really big on the sports psychology side. And then when I trained, when I switched camps, um, my coach now, Billy, he said, you know what? You're very smart and you have all the tools, but you just need to fight because, man, you can fight. Mm. And it's funny because I think that there's a very fine line between too much mental stuff and not enough. You know, you have to be able to um, – how do I put this? I think the best way to think about it is, is a lot of the mental stuff is going to get you ready for right before the fight in terms of, you know, quick changes, weight changes, opponent changes, this and that, because you're like, you have to be solid. You know what I mean? Um, you have to be ready for any change that can happen. Um, and then when it comes to the fight itself, that in and keep that mind frame, but then literally just go fight. Because if you keep thinking about all these factors, you're doing more thinking than you are fighting. Whereas now, um, when I look at it as I go in the fight, so let's say I'm fighting, for example, and I get buzzed. You know, there, there's tools you can use. You can reframe it. You can center yourself. That's fine. But your, your first instinct should be, how do I defend this? How do I get out of this? You know, like, I think that mental training will get you into a certain place mentally that you don't necessarily need it anymore or you need to do it less. So um, example, um, for me, if I get decked in sparring or if I get uh, uh, clipped in a fight or whatever uh, might happen, my natural instinct now as a fighter is to go right back in my head and not say, what did I get hit with? What do I do? How do I reframe this? It's, okay, I need to bite down on my mouth, figure out the solution and continue winning. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the shift that I've made. 
And I mean, anybody that's involved in sports psychology can say, yeah, that's just a different tactic of this and that. And, and I just look at it as, um, or from the perspective of at some point instinct will take over. And so your job mentally is to become confident before the fight. Um, and then that way, when, you know, God forbid, worst case scenario happens, boom, you're ready to go. You know what I mean? Best case scenario happens though as well. Boom, you're ready to go. And a, and a classic point again, going back to to the loss, is that you know best case scenario happens. You know I wiggled him, made his ass touch his heels. He stood up, and I did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and so yeah, mentally that was important too. But um, you know, I just got got overzealous. And again, that I think is fight maturity, being relaxed. Um, and so yeah, like is it mental for sure? Um, I think a lot of people talk about the comes to like the shit talking. Um, and to me, that's that's just funny because um, I can out talk a lot of people, but also um, people's words are meaningless to me. You know, I'm I'm the short kid from, you know, a very boring life. So say what you want. I'm happy where I'm at, and you know, I got a beautiful wife and a lovely dog, and I'm happy right where I'm at. <laughs> yes, it's it's so. That's so interesting. You talked about the sports psychology because um, I had on Josh Hill. He's cerebral champion. Uh, he does like mental coaching for the fighters specifically. And yeah. point of when you look at individual sports, there's a big difference between tennis, which is primarily an individual sport with the exception of doubles, right? And then and then you go into like uh, either a cage fight in MMA or a boxing match, right? Which again is is singular. Those are two very different psychologies, but they all revolve around the same thing. And, and, and that typically is what happens when I lose and what happens when I win. Yeah, I, I think you're, um, but I think you're a step ahead of yourself. Like I, I genuinely think the purpose of sports psychology in general is self-belief. And that's, that's it. Either you believe in yourself or you don't. And if you need the psychology side, that's fine. Um, you know, I, I've watched people that are extremely involved in sports psychology still have shit performances. And you know what? It wasn't the psychology. It was that they had a shit performance and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And so, yeah, maybe that's the psychology side of it um, in terms of like they were in the wrong headspace. Um, but if you practice it all the time, you it should be able to correct itself. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of this, you know, you, the art, Yes, it's still psychology because you're not able to put your head, your yourself in the right head frame, but it's almost like the presets to your head game need to be self-belief and confidence. And if you can't get back to that, then, then yeah, you need to use the tools of sports psychology. But again, like, it's just, I think there's too many variables when you look at it that way. And, and, you know, I know, um, for myself, I used to have paralysis by analysis all the time. Like all I had to do was punch, you know, I hit, I hit hard. And, and, you know, I, I'm smart in the ring and, and that's all I had to believe. I didn't have to believe anything else, you know, and, and it didn't matter what tool I, excuse me, what tool I was using or how I was going to do it. If I just believed that I hit hard and I'm, I'm very smart in the ring, then I would have had it, you know, and, and that's it. Because if you tell yourself you're smart in the ring and you know, you're smart in the ring, then you don't make those stupid ass mistakes. So it's, uh, it's, you know what though, it's, it's a paradox because it, one argument out, outweigh the other one at any given time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, t- take me through, take me through a week, um, a, a week of your life in camp and a week of your life outside of camp, including the nutrition, the training, the sparring, how many times you're sparring everything. Uh, so in camp. I mean, I live a very structured life just because of all the the stuff that I do. So, um, you know, in camp and out of camp are very similar because I actually don't really go out of camp in terms of training. Like after my fight, I was in the gym the next day, shadow boxing and training. So, I mean, for me, like it, it's it's part of my lifestyle and it's part of, you know, the lifestyle that I have at home. Like my wife understands that you know, this is the time that you will go to the gym. And, and, you know, I mean, that changes a little bit. It becomes a little bit looser when I'm not in camp because I can go kind of at any time because it doesn't matter if I'm being watched. But, you know, in camp, uh, we do a lot of sprints. Um, the, the one thing about my team is that we're always going to be in the best shape. 
um, and we're sparring a lot. Um, and I'm thankful for the sparring for sure. And I'm very thankful to my sparring partners because that's something that I never really had before. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just such a game changer for me because again, that is what prepares you mentally. You know, I, I'm sparring with guys that are 20 to 30 pounds heavier than me. And, and, you know, if I get hit by them, it, it doesn't feel nice. And, uh, but understanding like where my tools work with them and what I'm good at with them is, is, uh, is huge because I get in the ring and I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't hit like Matt or this guy doesn't hit like, or move like Jack or, or, or whoever, you know? And, and so for me, it's just, it's, it's great. And so a lot of sparring, a lot of conditioning. Um, and you know, I, I always prided my on, on being an extremely hard worker and uh, being extremely competitive when it comes to that. So if I'm not in first place, I might as well be in last place. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I train six days a week, you know, twice a day. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. You know, fight it, like fighting genuinely is, is my favorite thing to do, you know, and I think a lot of people um, say they love fighting and I think they love pieces of fighting for sure. But I love every piece of it. You know, I, I really love every piece of, of, of the puzzle when it comes to fighting. I love the chess game. Um, I love tough fights. You know, I love training. I love tough sparring sessions. I love guys that are better than me in the gym because it makes me want to be better. You know, and, and if you're the best guy in the gym, you need to change gyms. Yeah. You know, in my perspective, you know, you can be that guy or, or you can be nobody. And if you're nobody, then you work to be that guy. And, uh, you know, that's always been my, been my opinion. And so, yeah, I mean, the bottom line for my camp, just, we work our asses off and, and, you know, I follow instructions. <laughs> that's, that's basically it, you know, and, and, you know, I, I came from a very self-taught camp, um, before. And so I was training myself a lot and, you know, the, the time that I have with my coach, I'm very thankful for, but it wasn't as often as it is here. And so now it's, it's great you know, and, and I can't complain. And then, you know, when I'm not in camp, I'm still training every day. I just don't have my foot on the gas as, as much as I, as I did before. And in terms of, of sparring, how much of that sparring is hard sparring? Like what's the, what's the percentage? Is it 70%? Is it tech sparring where you guys are just touching each other? Or are you guys really biting down the mouthpiece and throwing? Uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of text barring, <laughs> um, but it, it's, uh, we do a lot of drilling, you know, a lot of drilling simulation, um, you know, just back and forth drills, you know, head movement drills, bag work drills, um, and then sparrings. So it's, uh, yeah, it's always, it's always, the sparring is usually very practical. <laughs> and, and now talk a little bit about the nutrition. Now you, I know you said you, you, you take a lot of different new nutritional things and i assume supplements for your brain health what's your nutrition on on a baseline you know monday through i assume saturdays when you train you, you know it's funny like uh i don't i don't actually really take a lot of supplements because i uh um they scare the shit out of me anything synthetic is very uh very scary to me as, as kind of childish as that may sound um i don't like the thought of putting shit in my body that i don't know what it is um, so the majority of my nutrition is just all whole foods, you know, like if it has an ingredients list, don't use it. And if you want something that has an ingredients list, make it yourself. So like a pasta sauce, for example, you know what I mean? Just buy all the ingredients that it takes and make it, you know what I mean? I love cooking. You know, I'll be in the kitchen for two hours, meal prepping and just getting ready. So it, for me, it's not, uh, it's it's not a chore to cook my meals or, or make stuff and you know like in camp i want to be properly fueled so i'm ready for the next day and then when the last sort of four three four weeks comes around and we kind of just manage the volume but i mean the food kind of stays all the same <laughs> so and you mentioned that you're a smaller guy here um first off what weight do you walk around at and what weight do you fight at so I walk around usually between like 125, 128. Um, and uh, so my title is at 118. But in Ontario, we have the same day weigh-in. So I basically walk on the scale. You know what I mean? Like, the, like I can get just diet down and walk on the scale at that point. So when it comes to a day before weigh-in, um, it'll be 150. 115, 115? Yeah. 
And now with the weight classes in boxing, I mean, it sounds like you're you're fairly versatile and being able to to move a little bit up and a little bit down. Do you see yourself moving weight classes? Um, I'll like I'll float between one eighteen and if if one fifteen is feasible, I'll float between those two. Um, like I'm small, I'm only five four. So, um, and the guys at one twenty two, like if you saw them in person like if you look at steve Mulliter or carl frampton or any of those guys like they're massive humans um to me you know what i mean and and so uh, like i see them and i'm like mm, maybe i don't want to mess around with that um because they, they just seem too big and uh you know i'm not i'm not really about getting in with a, a guy that's twice my size especially on a day, day before when um if it was same day maybe but you know i mean if you look at my my pro career i fought way too starting out and that's because there was not a lot of guys that we were looking at that were light so i basically just fought whoever yes i want to jump into the podcast how are you doing for time here are we okay i'm good yeah okay sweet um let's talk a little bit about your your promoter and your manager if you have one here how did how did they they kind of jump into life were they always looking at you even as an amateur how did you meet these these guys uh, so my promoter, I mean, I don't have a manager, but, uh, my promoter is Lee Baxter. Um, and I consider him to be one of the top promoters in, in, um, definitely in Canada, but in North America. And, uh, you know, it's great because we also have a, we have a friendship and, um, the way that we kind of came to be was really simple. You know, my first fight as a pro was against a kid from Huff, um, who they were coining to be the next superstar of boxing at 122 or 118 or whatever it was and i beat him <laughs> and so i think that it opened up lee's eyes to who i was and then we signed shortly after that and so the rest is history like we uh yeah it was uh it was cool you know and a very organic you know i'm not the kind of guy that forces anything um I just try to let my skills do the talking and, and let my personality flow. And, and if it works, it works. Cause I think that, um, if you have to force something like that, they're not they're, Maybe they won't like you, but it's, it's very, uh, forced, you know, and I'm not that kind of guy. So, um, it worked out and, you know, I, I see him every day at the gym and yeah, it's great. So he trains at your gym as well. Lee. Yeah. He owns the gym. He owns the gym. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, does he help with the sponsorships for you as well? No, no. I've been uh, sponsorless um, as a professional athlete because there, and there is a couple of brands that have approached me. Um, but I'm a bit of a knucklehead when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and bear with me on this because now it'll be public knowledge. Um, and, and this isn't for any other reason other than my own value. Um, I won't align with brands that don't align with my values. And, um, so example could be if an alcohol company was to pay me money, um, I would take it respectfully. I wouldn't take it because, you know, one, I teach kids. Um, so I don't want them seeing whatever alcohol logo on my, uh, on my shorts, but two, I don't drink. So why, why am I that guy? You know what I mean? And so there, there's a lot of brands out there that, um, we just didn't mesh. And I think that there are a lot of good brands out there and I think good things come to those who wait and we're in contact right now and, uh, things are lining up and they're lining up and they, they actually really respected, um, that move because I wasn't going to sell out and I kind of stuck to my guns with stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I'm thankful for that and I'm thankful that they understood that and maybe it shot me in the foot for a couple bucks for sure. Cause there was, there was definitely some serious money on the table, but, um, I won't, um, yeah, I, I can't do that. You know, it's not who I am and I'm a very genuine person when it comes to my values and, and, and who I support. And I have nothing against anybody that drinks any alcohol company, fill your boots, do your thing. It's just not me. So this almost begs the question to me, cause I know a lot of pro fighters, they rely heavily on these sponsors for not only the money to help feed their families, but also the money to help get through their training camp. Yeah. How are you able to, to afford your training camps? <laughs> um, what we got, I mean, I also have a job, right? So, um, unfortunately I haven't taken a vacation in five years and 
you know, but I, I also understand why. Um, my wife actually is on a vacation right now, um, hiking with one of her friends out in the States and she's having a blast, but, um, it's, uh, it's a decision I made. This is my, like, I love fighting and I'm willing to sacrifice this much time and money to, to do it. And so that, that alone there is, is enough to drive me to the top as well. Because I can look at all of the, like you said, the funding, the, the, the food, <laughs> you know, the, the training camp costs. I'm not doing this for nothing, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that um, when I look at it, like that is a driving force because I have, I have a, a person that is, uh, and, and uh, I owe it to, to Alicia to, to get to where I plan on going. Also, guys, please don't forget, subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, anywhere you guys listen to your podcast. Make sure you guys get the updates on more episodes as well. Facebook page, Instagram, and now also, guys, super happy, finally got around on the bandwagon, TikTok. Yes, all those will be in the description below as well.